Welcome to Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. I'm R.S. Benedict, the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction. If you've spent any time talking about geek culture, you've probably seen one word come up over and over again. Gatekeeper. (laughs) To be a gatekeeper is bad. To be a gatekeeper is exclusionary and harmful and discriminatory. Supposedly, the internet and our changing media landscape are getting rid of gatekeepers. You used to need an editor's approval to publish something. Now you can just post it online yourself. You used to need a broadcasting license to put on a radio show. Now any idiot can make a podcast. This is supposed to usher in a new democratic era of content, an era free of inequality or bias or those evil old boogeymen called gatekeepers. But is it really? Are we really getting rid of gatekeepers? Or are we just replacing the old gatekeepers with new ones? Joining us today to talk about this is Colin Broadmore. Hi, I'm Colin Broadmore. But uh, you recently talked about this a little bit and about geek culture and about the hungry ghosts of fandom in a really great piece by Bloodknife and on a really, really great episode of Champagne Sharks. So what was it that made you want to talk a little bit more about gatekeepers on our podcast? One of the things that came up a little bit in uh, when both writing the article and in the Champagne Sharks discussion with Trevor was the way that Fandom used to have certain goals, certain things like preservation or sharing enthusiasm or even uh, subversive goals like the one may uh, consider early slash. But the infrastructure of fandom and the way that fandom works are thought of today uh, has changed recently. Within at least the last 15 years, maybe the last 20 is probably the best time frame to look at it in. And... Part of that change has been the way fan fiction, which was, you know, outside of, uh, outside of, let's say, legal writing. It wasn't, it wasn't, uh, you know, it violated copyright. It was, it was sort of transgressive. The way fan fiction is now mainstreamed or has become mainstreamed and the way people use fan fiction to develop their own careers and also to, you know, kind of, kind of to bludgeon other people, uh, uh, you know, taking out the competition, uh, we could say, mm. with uh, with fan fiction now, and that's well, one. Thing I don't that know anything about that. You certainly <laughs> would. You... I just I just kicked my kicked my recording table in uh, in in uh, in shock uh, at that. I have um, no idea what you're referring to. Getting rid of competition. What? <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I think that's if you look at if you look at. Uh, and I'm sure that you have looked at 
what happened in, in, in your case, you know, a fairly innocuous take about fanfic. Something that, you know, a, a sort of critical take that is just true. It's just generally true. Everyone really acknowledges it. But these days, you're no longer allowed to say anything critical of fandom. And that's really become a problem because fandom is now an extension of capital. Uh, it plays into the, into the desires and wants of capital. And it is something that is just an expansion of the industries, you know, the gatekeepers, traditional gatekeepers like publishing and everything else. It's just become mm -hmm. a wing of that. And it's become a kind of weaponized wing of that because there are no rules for how fanficers may engage. If you are, if you feel you're a fanfic writer, you already feel that you're marginalized. Um, you've adopted the language of social justice to, um, to protect what is essentially your own hobby. It's right. When we're writing sort of comforting fix about my favorite pairing, people I'd like to, to see in love, and then I try to pass that off as subversive or transgressive, and if you say, hey, actually what you're doing is just adding value to that IP or to that franchise, people will feel uh, or at least uh, articulate that this is an attack on marginalized people, on marginalized communities, on people who wouldn't have a say otherwise. So um, social justice is often used, or the, the words or the terms of social justice are often used uh, as a bulwark to defend fan fiction, which really is now just a wing of um, the kind of traditional publishing even. Right. Well, before we, before we talk a little bit about the new gatekeepers, why don't we just take a moment to acknowledge who were the old gatekeepers? I mean, editors, publishing houses record company executives, just the people who decided what got played, what didn't. Radio DJs, I think, would decide, here's what's going to play on the radio, and here's what's not. And let's, I think we do need to acknowledge before we go on that the old gatekeepers were pretty bad, um, off, very often sort of paid off. It was pretty typical for a record company to pay a prominent DJ money in exchange for playing a certain song of a certain musician that they wanted to get popular. And of course, since these gatekeepers tended to be kind of old white guys from old money, they had some really, really strong biases. Really, really strong biases against women, against uh, people of color, against queer people. And I'm absolutely not going to de deny that. I'm not going to claim like the old days were good. Um, no, <laughs> let's just right. get that out of the way. I'm not saying like, oh, why can't it be like the old days? Like, I'm glad it's not like the old days anymore. Right. And there, there was some promise in that, you know, one of the things that uh, the internet was um, supposed to give us was freedom from gatekeepers. There was, it was a right. new a new way of getting your message out where you could, you know, share your ideas, share your writing, share everything. And right. that was sort of the promise of um, the internet when uh, fan fiction platforms ended up taking off or when self-publishing platforms online or, you know, and, and more self-publishing infrastructure was made available to people. It seemed like a great thing. It seemed like, all right. Oh, yeah. We've, we've knocked down the walls. Um, that used to prevent artists from putting their art, you know, in its true form in front of the the public. It used to be the fact, or, or the case, that if you wanted to find fan fiction, 
originally you would be you know, looking at some guy's GeoCities page for his favorite right. fan fix that he's collected. You go to altavista.com, your favorite search engine, and type in, you know, whatever fan fiction and find somebody's self-published GeoCities page with some terrible little under-construction animated GIFs and, and possibly a MIDI theme in the background. It was great. But it was also, it, it was very democratic, uh, I think, the early internet. I mean, with, to a certain extent, in order to have internet access, you had to have a computer, which was not this ubiquitous life tool that everyone had. But in terms of getting your work seen, like, people were on kind of a level playing field at the beginning. Right. At the beginning, you could, you really could put up your own work, Um you know, there were lots of communities, little fan communities. If you went to a BBS or something like that, you might find several people posting their fix. And once or twice, you might find a, a web page that was a collection of someone's favorite fan fictions or, you know, their favorite pairing. And they would try to archive stories from around the web. And then around, um, you know, the early 2000s, we start getting websites like uh, fanfiction.org where it becomes a central repository for fanfic. And that's where some of this uh, starts to change. And right. um, it's because these platforms or these containers of fanfiction end up generating their own worth. They end up having value. And we can see that. We could talk about it more. The, right. the Wattpad sale, you know, exactly, right. um, is, is something that... So all these people are writing on Wattpad... Where does that value go? What do they own? What are they getting out of it? And uh, who ends up pocketing? What was it? The the six billion was that right? That had got was? sold for some just obscene amount of money. Just uh, I think I got it written down somewhere. Hold on, six hundred million dollars to a South Korean firm million. called Naver. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I mean, you've had people. So where did that value? Where did that six hundred million come from? who created that value, who created that worth, and what did they see from it? And the answer is nothing. You know, the people who, the people who labor in the fanfic mines uh, <laughs> reap no real benefit from it. But the people that create the spaces or, you know, control areas where you can control, areas where they can exert control over it, they end up uh, being able to enrich themselves by this and and right. oftentimes it's uh it's a, a very kind of incestuous game you're always only one or two lumps uh, or jumps away from a traditional publisher anyway right. once you start looking at the connections between these writers and these publishers and they right and you know, i think uh, this like trend sort of followed just a general trend of the internet becoming more consolidated right like it feels now like there's maybe five websites you know, there's Facebook, there's Twitter, there's right. Insta, maybe there's TikTok if you're if you're under the age of thirty, and <laughs> you know there are, there are basically like a half a dozen websites that exist, and you go on them, and they're all owned by someone who's not you, and oh yeah, YouTube is number five, and they're all the content that yeah. gets shown to you, the posts or videos or whatever that gets shown to you, it's not neutral. It's not like you you don't organically stumble onto something the way you used to. Right. It's the algorithm sort of decides to put this in front of you. And maybe it's just based on here's what your history is. And this is something the algorithm statistically thinks you'd want. But often it's also 
kind of nudged in a certain direction by capital. Maybe, oh gosh, maybe PragerU has paid YouTube uh, some money to make sure their reactionary right-wing videos go into your suggestions on YouTube. And right. so, like these algorithms, these are created by human beings. They're not created by perfect like logic creatures and human beings, especially the kind of human beings who work in Silicon Valley certainly have their own biases and certainly have their own agendas and aren't really in it for the good of society or for the good of us or for the good of our souls. Yeah, I mean, there's a, it, when, when, I was, when I was young, those centuries ago, when I, was, when I was young and I discovered fanfic for the first time or first came across the fan fiction, it was um, on a bulletin board. It was for Star Trek The Next Generation, and mm -hmm. I read it, not knowing what fanfic was, you know. I mean, at that time, you didn't really have words for a lot of those things. Either you knew about fanfic, you know, in the late 90s, or or you didn't. It wasn't a thing um, on the national mind or a thing that mm. appeared in pop culture as it does today. So I found this, and uh, I read this story, and I thought, this is a very funny uh, Star Trek The Next Generation parody. And I thought it was intentionally, you know, supposed to be badly written. <laughs> And, uh, and a parody of it. And then I read the next one. I was like, well, that parody wasn't so good. It was mostly about uh, Riker and uh, Troy uh, getting off together. And, you know, I wasn't so interested to bring the comedy back. Um, but and then, you know, after reading 600 or so of those, I, uh, I realized that fan fiction was its own thing. But that discovery period, that discovery period where you may find something or you really had the sensation of finding something that you didn't know existed. It was kind of kept in a shadowy corner because it wasn't legal. I mean, fan fiction, right. fan fiction is not legit and it shouldn't be. It's not supposed to be. Right. I would, think before the companies realized, eventually the companies figured out that it's absolutely not a threat to their bottom line. And in fact, kind of helps it because building up fandom and building up these identities and the strong brand loyalty is actually really fucking good for your, for your profit. But I think in the beginning, they didn't quite know that and kind of it. So it was a little bit more underground. It was a little bit more counterculture because the companies didn't want this stuff. Right. Right. And now, you know, you compare that to uh, today, you will have companies advertise using fanfic. One example that I used in the in the article, I think around 2008, Bioware was releasing Star Wars The Old Republic, it's MMO. And what it would do is on Fridays, it would showcase uh, fan art. It was called uh, Fan Friday or Fandom Friday, something right. like that. And they would put up fan fiction stories. Um, they would show fan art. And it became a way of free advertising. Because in the lead up to the release of The Old Republic, uh, Bioware was putting out its own content. It had a little tiny web comic that it would put out every couple of months. Right. But this became free content, free themed content, free branded content. They would pick and choose which fix or which art they oh, wanted to become front facing for the company. And then they would put it out there. And it's 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 it is PR. It is advertising now. And as you said, they've created these identities, the identity of the fan means something in the 21st century in a way that it's it's never meant before. Fandom is really now all you need to say of your identities. I'm a fan. 
and and already people start understanding and it you know, becomes all-consuming in this way too and that people kind of uh, apply fandom and approach all aspects of their life as fandom like approaching sexual identity as a type of fandom a fandom approaching politics like a sort of fandom absolutely all the time seeing politicians as like the way as the way you might see your favorite rock star or something like how many hillary clinton fans love literally saw her as khaleesi and like photoshop right. pictures of her as khaleesi and when khaleesi turned bad they were furious because it was kind of like george R. R. martin is saying that hillary is bad what like they really literally saw her as khaleesi and it's like look this is a this is not your imaginary friend a politician might be a useful tool but they don't give a shit about you. They do not care if you live or die. They don't know you exist. Like, it's a very strange way to me to interact with the world. And I guess the reason I harp on it so much is because I see this kind of weird passive consumer mentality sort of swallowing everything. And we see everything through this one lens. And I just consider that to be kind of a destructive force socially <laughs> yeah I, I, it, it definitely is and it's also unleashed a, a style a style of <laughs> discourse a style of disagreement right that used to be common in shipping wars that was you know part of stan culture yeah we used to talk about that and thing which is you are hyper defensive of you know your politician or right your ip or whatever it is that you happen to love to the point where you will harass and dogpile people we see these things on twitter we talked about you know it the, was the real bad on tumblr twitter. it wasn't i believe there was an instance in which a a steven universe fan artist got like so viciously bullied to the point to the point where she was considering suicide because people thought they that this artist drew rose quartz too skinny yeah like you yeah. gotta fucking uh, get over that i'm sorry honey you you just you block that profile and you move on with your life like it's really vicious but i i feel like we're, we're getting a little off topic and to get back a little bit more toward the idea of gatekeepers of but let's take a look at kind of what it means to be a gatekeeper in terms of power and what right. that can mean in terms of cultural power or institutional power Cultural power is something we like to talk about a lot. Cultural power, I think, is in the discourse a heck of a whole lot. But institutional power is something that we don't talk about as much. And I know something I noticed that uh, liberals and centrists really don't like talking about. <laughs> right. I mean, it's it's that uh, you're not really allowed to criticize the the machinery at work behind uh, <laughs> behind our our. Uh, our cultural system you're not allowed to criticize the careers or the job opportunities um mm -hmm. the professional side of culture making and consent building and i mean that's even something we see in in the slightest uh reflection with uh what just happened with uh Neera tandon you know getting rejected for that job all the democrats all washington united not to fight for 15 dollars minimum wage or you know a new stimulus check they wanted to see Neera Tandon get a job because if she can't get a job, that means they won't be able to get those jobs. Right. That means that the patronage system, the institutional power that runs things is no longer functioning. So that's why that, because these people are so invested in holding, maintaining and exerting, exercising that power, 
it, it becomes their central concern. And we can see this in fandom mm. with the way people will make claims to being part of a fan fiction community when you know that they're probably, they probably weren't, you know, that N.K. Jemison is, is, is one of the examples of someone who will signal, you know, oh yeah, I know all about fan fiction. Uh, I, right. I used to write fan fiction, but you don't see N.K. Jemison's fan fiction. And the question is, why not? I mean, uh, <laughs> right. if you were, if you were really proud of that, why not show your fan fiction? Why not, why not show what you were writing? And it's in part because as old institutions weaken, and we are seeing some of that, you know, with the, the way that uh, publishing, publishing power is becoming diffuse. I mean, you can only maintain those specific traditional gates for so long in the current information infrastructure. But new institutions are growing out of that. And we are seeing, I think, a lot of early adopters getting in on the ground floor mm. of fandom, fandom as sort of a, a paradigm for new gatekeeping. It becomes the model Absolutely. for all media consumption. And if you can control fandom, if you can direct fandom, then that is the key uh, to cultural power in a lot of ways now. Right. I mean, if you have this group of people who identify as fans, and that's the core of their being, like, and, and you know it gets toxic. You know, we talk a lot about toxic fandom, and but unfortunately, I don't think the discourse has moved on from 2015. When people talk about toxic fandom, again, they still mostly talk about, oh, those toxic white men. But I mean, we have right. kind of a new, a new kind of fandom that's much more diverse, that's very, very female, and it's just as toxic. It's no less toxic yeah. than it was before. It's just toxic with a different vocabulary. It's toxic where yeah. instead of calling you a slur, they'll call you an abuser or something right. like that. Right. For your tweets. Like, it, 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 but they'll still, you know, tell you that you should die. Like, that's, it doesn't, it, for me, it's, it, I don't think, I don't think Isabel Fall felt better knowing that the people telling her that she was a monster whose voice needed to be silenced had Picru avatars instead of Roman statue avatars. I don't think that made her feel any better. <laughs> no, no. And, and it, it's even um, as uh, a leftist or, you know, a progressive or however you want to identify, when you get hit by the fandom dogpile like this, and again, you've, you've got firsthand experience this, it becomes a question of how do you argue back against it? Because defenders of fandom now uh, wrap themselves in the language of social justice. So it and just in a cloak of like, absolute victimhood as well. Like I can't right, stress and, like, oh my God, you genuinely abused me by, by writing a story with a title that was uncomfortable. Like it was very wild just reading people responding to Isabel Fall's story, just basically saying like, I was crying. It triggered me. It gave me a mental health crisis. Like, fucking go outside. I'm sorry. Right. I mean, the, the thing about reading, the great thing about reading is that reading is, you know, reading a text is fully human powered. At any point. You can just stop. You can stop. You can stop. The book doesn't work without you. The text doesn't work. You are the engine for reading. You have complete control over it. And at the same time, somebody creating art or or writing writing fiction 
making something that is truly transgressive will immediately be told no you're 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 causing harm you're you're upsetting right. people you're causing harm so if something is transgressive it should be upsetting people yeah. it needs to be upsetting people we're, we've 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 lost the ability to wield outrage as right part of our our, our artistic portfolio it's and it's um and there's no understanding of the different sorts of pain. Like, this story hurt me, but sometimes it can hurt in a good way. Like, a good horror movie, it hurts to watch, it's uncomfortable, it's painful, but it kind of feels good in the same way, like, oh, physical pain. You know, sometimes physical pain means you have an injury, or sometimes it means you worked out real hard yesterday, and that's cool because you're on the way to getting swole, and that's good. Good for you, you know? We don't know the difference yeah. anymore. Just, this hurts, exactly. this has to end. Like... No, and, <laughs> keep going. Then, you'll be strong. You'll you'll look really cool. No more. No more. Uh, you know, everything has to be a happy ending now. Yeah. No more sad endings. Everything has to be. Everything has to be positive. Representation has to be positive. It's and and if you think back, if you look back at transgressive literature of the past, a lot of it wouldn't probably get published today mm -hmm. it would probably be you know end up in a in a situation like uh, Isabel Fall where you know you write something and it is actually subversive and so everyone shuts you down so you know I just the the article that I just finished for Blood Knife well I mean in the past out, we had the Red Scare we we had the so Red we had scare, that you know, so I'm not gonna say oh the old the good old days there was more room for transgression no there there literally was not uh, a whole lot of people got their their careers ruined and they had to leave the country in order to keep writing because of the this anti-communist like witch hunt in in the 1950s um and and i do right. but i do think it's interesting that from what i've seen some of the biggest like angry sort of rage mobs have been a, a directed toward the left like i really right. see isabel fall's story as criticism from the left i think it had very leftist themes it was anti-military it had right. absolutely nothing positive to say about capitalism, and it was very like anti-assimilationist, radical queer, and all these kind of comfortable, fuzzy liberals who think that like progress means you know more gay ICE officers, like right. really couldn't fucking handle that. And it's a cliche that liberals hate leftists more than they hate fascists, but um, I don't think it's wrong. <laughs> what 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 the liberal wants to do right now is to leave the institutions the same except put themselves in control of the positions yeah. of power and you cannot keep using an oppressive system you cannot continue a system of oppression and but now we'll use it against the right people you know right. i mean that doesn't that doesn't play so one of the one of the things i've been thinking about was um if we if we consider something like the gothic novel you've got a book like matthew lewis's the monk he wrote that or it was published in 1796 and he was a teenager when he wow. wrote it he was just under 19. uh there's some wow. argument over how long it took him to compose it but yeah he's a teen so he's a teen he's a, a a young uh gay teenager who writes it he writes this this gothic novel against a backdrop of state violence against gay men. It was around that time during the Georgian period that the state decided we're going to start hanging people for sodomy. 
the sodomy laws had been on the, the books since the Tudor period, but they were not usually enforced until the Georgian period when you get this explosion and all other forms of capital punishment go off or, you know, start decreasing, but executions for sodomy explode at the same time. So he's writing at a time when uh, undercover cops on special task forces were sent around to, you know, entrap gay men. They would infiltrate communities and, you know, meeting places and spy on people. They would ruin people's lives and you could die for it. After a point, it became too difficult to prove sodomy against people. So the courts made up a new charge, which was attempted sodomy, mm. which had less proof. And then they would just stick you in a pillory and they would let the mob kill you. And the mob did, in fact, kill several men like that. It blinded others. It broke bones. I mean, it was mob violence against a particular target. And it was a spectacle of violence as a means of social control. And mm. here's this young teenage gay man writing a book, a gothic novel at that time, and he intentionally breaks every single taboo. So you have, there's, you know, the trigger warnings, I, you couldn't fit them on the book. There's <laughs> rape, there's incest, there's murder. There's, there's Catholicism, this, you know, dun, dun, dun. Catholicism, the, the worst Catholicism. <laughs> I, I, having been raised Catholic, you know, and did my time, I'm, I think I'm allowed to say that. But, um, and, and it's got all these things, which would prevent that book probably from being uh, published today. At the end, there are no happy endings at the end of the monk. Spoilers, you know, what, what the hell, it's a gothic novel. There are, there are no, no happy endings at the end. Um, there are a few heterosexual pairings that, that do finish up, but there is, there's a sense of unhappiness, unfulfillment to each one of them, and there's always a sense of uh, the true object of desire has been lost, and this is kind of settling as a proxy. So mm -hmm. if, if Matthew Lewis... <laughs> literally writing a young adult own voices novel in <laughs> 1796 tried to get that published today people would be like oh you can't do this you can't write this you can't write these things you're not allowed to address these people subjects absolutely do an isabel fall against him yeah i mean it's 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 a thing and so we have this sense that oh well we have progress we're we're getting better you know everything gets a little better over time and and we're on just one big ramp upwards until we get to a fully equal society. And that's not true. I mean, mm. the forces of power, the institutions of power, compulsory heterosexuality, all those things remain. And they just find new ways to sort of enshrine themselves in the, in the current system. And what we're seeing now is a transition of the same kind of gatekeeping philosophy that kept the old traditional publishing uh, landscape running. It's just that same kind of idea, it's just in a, a slightly different infrastructure for different reasons and enriching slightly different people. Right. Though, uh, like, like I think we said, you're never too far away from the old centers of power. Because who are the people that can fight online all day? Who are the people that can lead dog piles? Right. They're generally established people. A lot of them got established because they had connections or because even the time to, to write is itself a sort of privileged thing. How many right, people that is something I really write? want to stress. This, I, I know it sounds corny to complain about like clout, but so much of the path up right now goes through fandom or it goes through internet notoriety, and that's not neutral. If you look at who becomes the big influencer, who becomes the big Twitch streamer, these aren't people who started off from from nothing. These are usually people who started off from 
a family with money. Say to be a good Twitch streamer, well, you need the money for video games, you need the money for a video game console, you need the money for a good computer that can run it well, you need the money for a good internet access that's really speedy so you get good video quality. That costs money, and to have the time, to be able to put in the time to learn the intricacies of fandom, to become a big person in fandom, that is a privilege that most people don't have. If you're a work, even if you're a teenager, if you're a working class teen, you probably got a side job to just out of necessity because your parents can't buy you new sneakers or whatever, or because maybe you even need to help your parents out with the, with the rent. So even though it's not quite as obviously visible in terms of who's getting in, who's not, there's very clearly a pay to play system in place here. There's very clearly a, a gate and the gate has a financial charge to get through. One of, one of the most pernicious things I think about it, that's uh, uh, it, publishing everything under capitalism, neoliberalism has always kind of hidden under the fig leaf of the meritocracy. It's, yeah. oh, well, you know, this got published because it's good, or this person it's has this incredibly, job because it's good. I'm, the longer I'm spending in publishing, the more I'm seeing how much of a pay-to-play system it is. And that's not just in literary fiction, okay? That is in genre fiction. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, SFF has these really, really big annual workshops. There's the Clarion Workshop, there's the Odyssey Workshop. There's also Clarion West, which takes place in the West Coast. If you go to Clarion, maybe you'll learn about writing, but from what I've seen of the courses being taught and the people teaching them, it's not really like a spectacular education. But what you will do is you'll get a chance to meet a lot of significant, influential industry professionals. And you notice that the people who are Clarion grads form this very strong little clique and constantly promote and support each other's work, promote and support each other's works for award nominations, promote and support each other's works when it comes to publishing, give each other blurbs, really help each other out. And you can apply for a scholarship if you're lower income, but keep in mind that there's a limited number of those. So if you are poor, you have to be good to get the same access that a bad, wealthy person can get. And the other side of Clarion is that it is six weeks long. How many people can af can take six weeks off of work at one time? Yeah, I mean, these things, it's like the, the new literary prep school. Yeah. It's the old, old school tie sort of connections that you go, you pay your money to go to the thing <laughs> to make connections with yep. other people. And it's, it's no longer really about art, it's about networking. Yeah, um, like which is understandable. Things. It's that way in every profession. But what really bothers me is seeing people who are Clarion grads, who are part of the clique, who do this thing all the time, throwing around the accusation gatekeeper at other people. Right. If you are a Clarion right. grad, you are a gatekeeper. Full fucking right. stop. If you are in favor of any of this stuff, you are a gatekeeper and you are a financial gatekeeper. You are an active part of the system that keeps people who cannot afford six weeks off of work, which is, I'm going to say, the vast majority of, of people, you are part of the system that's right. keeping them out. You are an active part of this. Yeah. Unless you are fighting to change it, you are 100% complicit. So calling somebody a gatekeeper because they make a, a, an aesthetic critique of a book. Well, you have in your little bio, Clarion 2014 is the most laughable example of projection. <laughs> 
And what's maddening to me is that nobody sees it, that, that nobody sees it, nobody acknowledges it. All they do is, well, there's a scholarship. Like, okay, who can afford six weeks right. off of work? What job pays you right. six weeks paid vacation consecutively? Mine doesn't, like, I, I, I could not take six weeks off of work. And I got a pretty solid job. I got a really cushy job with, like, good, I'm in a union. I've got, like, really great benefits. But that's not what a typical American has. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, it's definitely a two-tiered system. And the, the thing I find most pernicious or objectionable about it is you have the top tier, the people who can afford these things, the people who already had connections, the people who already had a safety net that allows them to write, that allows them to focus on um, doing courses like that or whatever they need to get published. And then you have the people who never really have a shot at that. But the top tier has this message, it's kind of like a prosperity gospel, almost, right. sort of, or a pyramid scheme message where, no, no, you can get in on fandom, get in on the ground floor of fandom, fandom is free, you just start writing there, and you can become like me, become my fans, you know, and, and it becomes like fandom influencers who didn't need fandom, who bypassed fandom um, MLM, you know, right, and, and then, <laughs> buy some fandom leggings then, and resell them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 really it's really like that. It's like, oh yeah, no, you guys just you keep writing fan fiction. In fact, I'd love it if somebody wrote fan fiction of my stuff, my writing. I'm very open to that. Well, because it's it's free advertising, and then at the same time, all these other people are like, oh my god, my my Raylo fic is going to put me on the map. It's gonna it's <laughs> this is the one that's going to break me out. They're, they're, it's a scam. It's, it's crowdsourcing. It's crowdsourcing human creativity to lend to IPs and to just be channeled into clout for certain literary influencer accounts online. And it's just this this promise of oh no, if you if you do this, if you do in fandom, it'll it'll you'll you'll be just like me. When just like me obscures the fact that they're they paid for the course that they were already friends with somebody in publishing that their dad's a famous editor that they've got the the cash to take a year off from college and and write a book that they that they can spend the summer at a writing workshop and not having to work a summer job right right yeah i mean that you can you can live <laughs> on on writing alone is a privilege that almost no one in the country has right. i mean at any point. And so when people can do that, and then they tell you, oh, well, I just uh, worked my way up through the fandom ranks, you know, you're you're being lied to. You're being lied to, and you got to start questioning, what are they getting out of it? And what do they want? What is your role in this? Right. Let's let's not be suckered in right. to uh, what's this. The, this the is something I've found scheme. over and over and over again in publishing, especially in SFF. We talk so much about marginalization and different axes of oppression of race of gender identity of sexuality so on and so forth but they never talk about money no one ever talks about money in any hard material terms and it is a massive massive taboo because they don't want to admit that there's this side to it they they refuse to admit it it's too uncomfortable to say like Sure, yeah, you're, you know, your hashtag own voices, but only, it, yeah, you, you're publishing this Southeast Asian author, except it turns out she's the daughter of a multimillionaire luxury hotel chain owning family. Like, great, 
Congratulations. That's truly diverse. I'm sure now any young, diverse queer woman whose father owns a luxury hotel can be inspired to try her hand at writing. Like truly, truly you've opened the field for all kinds of millionaires. Good job. Right. Because, (laughs) I mean, it's, it's exactly like you said, there's this sense or, or this purposeful hiding of the power dynamics. We, we hide, hide the power dynamics, hide the power relation, hide the question of power. And right. who has power? You I mean, we got one. We, we focus on uh, cultural power, and there's a lot of cultural power, but we ignore 100% institutional power. And I think you can see that a lot when it comes to criti- critics or critiques. Critics get called gatekeepers all the time, even though your job is to criticize shit. But you get called a gatekeeper if you say you don't like something. But like, what power does a critic actually have? Like, do bad reviews really sink a movie? Like, probably not. Not that much. Uh, can a movie can a movie even get a bad review anymore? I mean, yeah, do we like, even see I mean, bad Cats reviews got a lot of bad reviews, movies? but I don't think it's the critics that kept Cats from like making tons of money. It was just that's right. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the the one. But I mean, so many of these things. <laughs> what happens is you have a, this big budget rollout, and all the reviews are amazing. This is the greatest film of all time. It's groundbreaking. It's the greatest feminist work. It's the greatest whatever representation. Then people see it, and it's bad. Right. And, you know, the rotten tomatoes or whatever, and people start saying it's bad. And, and the, the, what distinguishes a toxic fandom from a, a regular fandom today is the toxic fandom disagrees with whatever the corporate line is. Right. You can be, as, as you know, having been on the receiving end, you can be as vile, as violent, as vicious as you want in attacking somebody. As long as you've got... Right. You're on the corporate side, you know, and and that's the thing. So fans making fun of the Last Jedi, that's toxic, right? That's a toxic fandom. Fans dogpiling you, sending you death threats, that's uh, good fan behavior because they are championing fan fiction and our love of of uh, media. So it becomes not about behavior; it becomes about what side you are on and we right. do have to pick a side in this i mean there are sides and we have to acknowledge that and as leftists we need to think about where our energies need to go what we need to support and what sort of things we need to to be against the homogenization of all culture as you know a giant disney marvel pixar film is a bad thing and none of your captain america Spider-Man fix are going to stop that or mm. change that and acting like you're oppressed when people question either fandom or when they question the MCU acting like oh well or when why can't they we simply just have make nice an aesthetic things? critique that kind of drives me a little this is I think something really particular to genre fiction particularly SFF any kind of aesthetic critique is considered deeply offensive You can call someone immoral, you can call someone an abuser, you can call someone like irredeemably bad, and that's just sort of acceptable discourse. But if you just say like, this person's writing style isn't very good, the dialogue's corny, or this movie was poorly cast, that's like unforgivable. And it's bewildering to me to see that because I think because I came up not through fandom, but um, I've just always kind of been a part of art or at the periphery of art. And... Art is all about critique. Art 
critique is normal. You're supposed to critique the aesthetics of it because that's the main thing, not not more morality or does this fit my political ideology, but like, well, what about this writing style? What about the structure? What about the characterization? The characters feel flat. I mean, in, in, any fig, in any drawing class, there's a moment at the end where the students sit in a circle, look at each other's drawings, and like, comment on them. Maybe negative things, maybe positive things. In my fucking high school creative writing class, we would sit in a circle and critique each other's poetry. And, you know, say nice things, but also point out flaws and things that should be changed. So to me, the idea that critiquing another work's aesthetics is this unforgivable sin makes absolute... N- n- no sense to me at all the idea like this is gatekeeping like no this is how you get better this is how you improve yourself as a writer and it's not an irredeemable sin to like write a book that's not that great i kind of feel like if you say oh this book's poorly written well that's not like saying this writer is horrible and should go away forever it's just like well maybe their next book will be good you know maybe their second book will be way better let's hope they get better at writing that's cool but that's that's yeah. forbidden. Mean, even, that's even, gatekeeping. Even suggesting even suggesting that something could be written better, or yeah. that you know a writer could do something differently or improve, is an attack. And I mean, uh, I guess everybody, everyone who's ever written a thing and put it out there and got right. criticism attack always has a you know there's there's some criticism at the that's been nagging at the mind of every writer for however long they've been. Yeah, because well, well, maybe it's slightly guy. true, and you're like. Fuck. Yeah, yeah. That's the Usually worst kind of criticism, <laughs> the one when they're right. Uh, I know that the, the, you know, the criticisms of my writing that have offended me the most in my life are 90% true. I mean, <laughs> it's just God stuff that I don't want to change. It's, yeah, it's that's true, the one that's the worst. It makes you so mad. How dare you? How dare you say yeah. something truthful to me? And, and so the, the, other, the thing related to that, which bothers me a lot, is... We're not allowed to talk about messaging in a work or what message a work might contain in it, what a work may be trying to say. Or we're not even allowed to believe that art does say things anymore. If I look at, if I look at a, a Marvel film and I say, all right, well, this is a defense of the military-industrial complex, or Iron Man is a, is a defense of uh, Obama's drone program and the idea of smart weapons and, and stuff like that, people will say, oh, it's just entertainment. It's only entertainment. Stop trying to ruin things by, by reading these things into it. But I mean, the message is there for a reason. It's, it, it is a, a cultural message. It's a, it works its way into art. And it's these messages, you know, these kind of unspoken assumptions and ideas under late capitalism that we need to be uh, critiquing, we need to be resisting, but we're not even allowed to look at them. And the it's only entertainment has now become it can only be entertaining, where if your work is anything but entertaining, Mm. if uh, it doesn't have a happy ending or, you know, it makes somebody sad it is no longer an appropriate an appropriate kind of work to be out there so we've we first had entertainment as kind of defense or a way to prevent people from analyzing how the logic of capitalism the logic of imperialism appears in 21st century media and now it's become a point where nothing is allowed to have that kind of meeting because if we start admitting that things do mean something we might (laughs) some of our faves may be implicated um, bringing it a little bit back to cultural gatekeeping. Now, we've talked a little bit about how we use cultural gatekeeping as a way to sort of disguise or buttress 
institutional power and institutional gatekeeping. But I'd like to mention a little bit about how fandom as gatekeeping isn't going to guarantee us a better culture in any way. Like, um, right. we, we've recently had a movie, um, Ready Player One, a book and a movie, Ready Player One. And in Ready Player One, this guy, Wade Watts, he gets the keys to this virtual kingdom basically by being the biggest fan. And by being the biggest fan, that's just devoting himself to rote memorization and consumption. In order to sort of win this this thing and, and get to be basically the king, it's not by creating something new, but by playing the game as it was intended to be played. Not by cracking it, not by modding it, not by taking it apart, not by making something newer or better, but by playing it the way it was meant to be played the way it was designed to be played by memorizing the facts of this billionaire's life and worshiping him without really significantly criticizing any of this. And I kind of think that's a that's a hideous message, the idea that culture belongs to the people who devote themselves to it uncritically, because when that's what right. we get, what we get is stagnation, a really boring, bland culture that never changes. And I think we're seeing this. Champagne Sharks, not on your episode, but on a, on a different episode, they talked a lot about Gen X creators. And they compare Gen X creators now to baby boomer creators back then. Like one thing they point out is with George Lucas. George Lucas was obviously a huge fan of these old sci-fi serials. He loved Flash Gordon. He adored Flash Gordon. So when he came of age, he decided he was going to make his own Flash Gordon. And he made Star Wars. But now Gen X creators, they grow up adoring Star Wars. They love Star Wars. They love Star Wars. And now that they come of age and they become filmmakers... They don't want to make their own Star Wars. They want to make Star Wars Part 20. And that's a huge fucking difference. George Lucas obviously took these massive inspirations and he wore his influences on his sleeve. It's very clear he was influenced by Flash Gordon, but he didn't want to make Flash Gordon Part 2. He made Star Wars and it had a huge impact. But J.J. Abrams, you know, all these guys... They just want to make Star Wars part whatever, and that's never going to have the impact that a new thing is. Instead of making their own thing, they just want more Star Wars. And that's what you end up with when you have fandom as gatekeeper. Instead of creating your own thing and showing people things they haven't seen before and taking us somewhere we haven't seen before, which is just a wonderful experience. They're just taking us back to something they've we've seen before but oh look here's here's a twist and it's kind of meta commentary and it's that this and it's that and you see and and like the new star wars are all kind of just commenting on the old star wars and they're not really bringing much new to it like i kind of liked the last jedi but the more i think of it all i can think of is that it's just basically commenting like look this look this is like empire strikes back except blah 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 this thing's different it's like okay but does it have any identity aside from being Empire Strikes Back except different, you know? What else does it right. have going for it? And that's what we end up with over and over again. And I'm sure the, the fucking corporations love it because instead of having to take a risk on some new thing, they can just add more value to these pre-existing intellectual properties that they already own. Right. Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the, uh, there was a tweet that, that, went viral a few weeks or, or a month back 
about oh you're making fun of fan fiction well you know those are the voices of marginalized people um, you know women and 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 queer people it's like may if that were true when we can break that down there's ways that we can look at that sort if that's true it's still riffing on works created by <laughs> you know enormously privileged people right creating more works by by straight white men we're just now instead of queer people and women and 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 and, and uh, marginalized groups writing their own literature they are now just extending the literature of these sometimes even dead white men if we're talking about something like Arthur Conan Doyle and there's this this difference between or or everything everything is fanfic now or we say everything is fanfic because cultural works of art have always been you know slightly derivative they've always been in dialogue yeah. with the cultural around them and, and works of art in the past the history of art i mean that's just the way it is but now all that's presented as oh that was fanfic so you'll get people saying things like paradise lost is fan fiction okay. i mean how there's no justification for that statement there can be no justification for that statement or to go back to the um the other example of of uh, Matthew Lewis and the monk. There's a scene in Matthew Lewis and the monk where um, the monk summons Satan. Satan shows up, meets him in a cavern. I mean, this is the sort of thing you do on a on a Friday night. He summons Satan, meets him in a cavern. Yeah. Satan shows up as this beautiful twink, just this hot young man. He's just <laughs> uh, mesmerizingly beautiful. He's got these. Uh, he's got a little headband on. He has these these diamond bracelets. Uh, he has rainbow-colored wings. He is—he's uh, got this silver wand. He's—he's he's beautiful, and and Ambrosio the monk uh, feels himself attracted to this angelic demonic figure. Mm. And um, the the one of the things I talk about in this next article, which this is uh, original research Wikipedia, is um, that scene. That description is actually stolen from Paradise Lost. <laughs> What Matthew Lewis did is he stole, there's a scene in which uh, Satan takes on the form of a beautiful young angel to trick another angel as he's flying to earth. And Lewis stole that. He stole Milton's description. And he turns he turns Milton's rebel, better to, to rule in hell than serve in heaven, rebel Satan of Paradise Lost, one of the you know most important foundational works of uh, British Protestantism, one of the canonical uh, English epics. And he takes it, and he turns in, into a hot, young, sexy man that is down to fuck. And it's that, that is subversive. I mean, that is actually subversive. It's not fan fiction. It's a dialogue with art. And by doing that, by writing that scene, Lewis puts the monk back into the canon. He, he opens up queer readings of Paradise Lost saying, hey, maybe there was some stuff in here that you were missing. And he puts his work beside it in the canon by doing that. And if we think about, you know, what would it have been like to be a young man around, you know, the 1790s when they are executing gay men? And there's no, you can't, you can't find much uh, homoerotic art, but you've got these classic pieces, these classic things that are allowed to be taught like Paradise Lost, but that still have ambiguity and things that you can explore and play with and you can create out of that. And it's that kind of transgression, that kind of subversion that we've lost because now, and, and if, if you did it today, it would be all trying to uh, generate buzz for the 
for movie long Paradise Lost adaptation right. by Peter Jackson to come out. So we've we've lost a lot of that ability to really transgress to what when we when we used to transgress in art and when we use derivative pieces of art to transgress and now it's just oh everything's fanfic and everything must be a celebration of this art and what 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 happens when we start blindly celebrating our own cultural products Capital has always been really good at taking opposition to it and swallowing it and profiting off of it, you know, and witness the Che Guevara t-shirt. Like, now it's just, it's a thing that gets sold, this guy's face. And I think we've seen quite a bit of that going with calls for more diversity in publishing. Scholastic Books partnered with the We Need Diverse Books movement. This started off as what I think was genuinely uh, an attempt to sort of promote diversity in publishing and something that was very anti-establishment. But Scholastic Books, this very, very well-established book publisher, just said, okay, yeah, we're going to use this, and it's a marketing tool now. Penguin Random House partnered with Diverse Texts to do the same thing. And I'm going to point out that a lot of these sort of new texts are not public domain, and the old ones that we want to get rid of are public domain, easily available, or free online. But my question is, if a huge publisher is that happy to work with you and to use your hashtag slogan to sell stuff, how subversive are you, really? <laughs> right, right. I mean, I, <laughs> an actual subversive work would be out there pissing people off, sponsors wouldn't want to touch it, nobody would be retweeting it, and it would be it would be wonderful i mean it would be great if you could if you could find anything like that today but like you say all resistance to capitalism will be commodified it gets repackaged and we get sold back sort of the appearance of resistance instead of actual resistance so which i mean which has taken its kind of final form with politics if you look at how representation gets used in politics well, well, we're bombing the same countries, but we're doing it in a more diverse way. Right. Now, you know, it's just, which is the, the kind of the classic example, but it's going to be the, the same thing. The same way that that language always gets co-opted by, adopted by, and then abused by those already in power. The structures of power don't change, just the justifications for power are the only things that are actually in flux. So it's it's it is it is a danger i think for leftists because we are sympathetic to these issues to begin with i mean we do want more diversity we do want to break down the the old gates the problem is we are trying to prevent the new gates from forming and people are extremely invested in those new power structures that are shaping up out of the old and this is this is a turning point for us we have a chance now before things get too enshrined, before things take over too much, 
we have a chance to to push back. We have a chance to try to live up to the more anarchic uh, spirit of what the internet promised. And we have a chance to say, I'm going to do my own stuff. I mean, I wrote fan fiction. I wrote fan fiction for 10 years, I guess I was in the fanfic hmm. community. And um, some of them, some fan fictions won awards and, and various things. But it was about the time that fanfic started getting um, adopted by companies that I realized, and you know, I saw my work being used to advertise for companies. Ooh. I was like, I don't own any of this. I wrote yeah. this. I wrote this because I'm a fan, but I own nothing. At the end of the day, I have nothing here. I've wasted kind of 10 years of my life. And they, they, what are the paths out of that? Well, you can uh, reskin it, which is the popular one. You know, I just, I just take my fan fiction, change them to original character names and resell it, which is why we have... Fifty Shades. Spin-off franchises that, yeah, we have Fifty Shades. We've got other uh, fantasy... IPs a lot of that things that are very clearly Harry the, Potter, but Harry pitching. Potter with uh, yeah, down to down to the glasses and everything, you know, but <laughs> but slight differences and stuff like that because they started out as a as a Harry Potter fanfic and just got reskinned and released. But if you had, if when you wrote a thing, it had any meaning for you, then it couldn't have really worked as fanfiction. You can't take something that was intended to be fanfiction and then unfanfic it because the fan fiction elements are you're already in someone else's playground. You've already accepted the terms of their logical argument. You've already accepted the terms of their world, their characterization and how they see things. You're expanding that. It's, it's something that drives me absolutely wild to see all these people, these potentially diverse voices, struggling to fix the writing mistakes of past writers. Why are you rewriting someone else's thing to make it more inclusive or right. positive towards this or that? Why aren't you writing your own thing that you can control? Why don't you take your talent into your own hands and create something for yourself that speaks to you and isn't about this? And part of it, too, I know we covered it before in the the Queerness is Not a Fandom episode, and a lot of it, too, it's like, on on top of not creating your own thing, you're also not finding your own people. Like, I remember a few right. years ago, there was that whole thing about, like, well, maybe Hermione's black. What about black Hermione? People were, felt, for obvious reasons, hey, the Harry Potter books, they're super popular, but they're super, super white. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a major character who wasn't white? So they just sort of decided, well, in our interpretation, let's say Hermione's black. But the thing they didn't do was to go out and seek out children's fantasy literature about black characters by black artists. Right. And I'm thinking, right. wouldn't wouldn't it be so much more gratifying to look for that instead, to, to read something that's written by someone like you, written about someone like you, that something that's right. really meant something to you, that 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 has a voice that will really speak to you as opposed to keeping yourself in this little playground owned by this this white British lady who it turns out is a huge transphobe. Like, wouldn't you have just been yeah, more it, nourished by finding a black fantasy book? You, I, you, I mean, you certainly, you, you really would be. And there seems to be even a resistance to the idea of looking at any works outside of what are popular big IPs now. 
because you get people, you'll have, have people tweeting the hot take with, we don't need the classics anymore. There's mm-hmm. nothing in the classics that can speak to, to a child today. Uh, there's nothing that they can learn. These are all different people. Again, the monk is now part of the canon. Mm-hmm. If you look at the canon of, of Gothic literature, it's, it's up there. And uh, Lewis himself, though he was a, a young gay teenager, a couple of years later, he was a member of the House of Parliament. I mean, he's, he's a privileged <laughs> guy to begin with. But there is something in the monk. There is the anger. Uh, it's kind of youth and revolt in the monk expressing real anger at a society that will kill someone, you know, that will put men to death for loving inconveniently. And that runs through, and that's not going to talk to people today. Kids can't learn anything from that. Kids can't, you know, read a book by someone their own age. I saw so many people trying to argue that, like, Of Mice and Men isn't going to speak to anyone today. Like, are you kidding? A book about two men, one of them who has a severe cognitive disability, trying really hard to survive in a hostile job market, that doesn't speak to you? Like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. I mean, it's it's, it's what, what is supposed to speak to us today. If you look at these things that are supposed to speak to us, you, you get them and they're bland. They're safe. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they weren't safe, they wouldn't be a gigantic franchise, were, right. were they? I mean, if, if it really was something disturbing, that, that would not be easily consumable. I mean, the goal under capitalism is to smooth all the edges off of every cultural product. To make sure that it goes down real easy, you know, with your, I don't know what I'm gonna I'm gonna open a club soda here, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it goes down well with your club soda. Very but nice. um, it's it's one of those those things where all our all our energy gets directed into these sterile IPs and all these other stories that would still be expressive to kids today would still mean something to kids today because the systems of oppression have not changed. I mean, <laughs> racism, you go back, you go back to a story, uh, Huckleberry Finn, racism. All right. Yeah. Well, have we cured that? Has racism gone away? No, we're dealing with some of the same questions there. Uh, something yeah. like the bunk, how, how are sexualities policed in society? Those are questions that are still with us today. My, my favorite thing, because it always gets me, is uh, Sherlock Holmes. It's the way Watson is from, a, he's coming back from Afghanistan. He's just, you know, been uh, an invalided out of Afghanistan. And it's great because no matter when you make a Sherlock Holmes TV series or spin-off book, we're always still in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. I mean, somebody is always still invading there. It's, it's, a, it's this, this weird thing where one of the reasons we don't want to look back at these histories is because we'd realize how little has actually changed. How much you know the power has remained in the same hands? How much the strategies and the logic of the system has never actually been challenged mm. by these things? Right, right. Yeah, don't do it. Don't write fan fiction. So don't write fan. Fiction. I instead of not just fan fiction, like for, forget about fan fiction for for a second. We're just ask yourself who actually is the gatekeeper here. Before you call somebody else a gatekeeper, before you call a critic a gatekeeper for saying he didn't like a movie, before you call some random person on Twitter a gatekeeper because they said that, I don't know, a book was dumb, ask yourself, like, what gate does this person actually keep? 
Right. Like for me, I've been accused of a gatekeeper. What gate do I own, people? I have a podcast. This is the entirety of the gate that I have. We have 40 subscribers on Patreon. That is and the if complete you let, If you let me gate. on a podcast, it's I not let you on. Game. Obviously, we're not real high quality here. We'll let any old riffraff on our show. Yeah, it's 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 a we're it's a blindness to structural. So that's a gatekeeper, but somehow Disney is not a gatekeeper. Somehow right. this corporation that controls half of our our entertainment media that that this corporation that controls half of our our entertainment, half of our our films and will never put an explicitly queer sexuality in a movie, how the fuck is that not a gatekeeper? It's real weird. Disney never gets called a gatekeeper. That never accusation never gets thrown at them, even though they quite literally are. They are the biggest goddamn gatekeeper that exists today in entertainment, in film. Definitely. (laughs) Definitely. I mean, the Walt Disney Company is your friend. I mean, it is your best friend. Never, uh, never betray it. It certainly, it certainly isn't buying up all cultural products across the world and then limiting access to them and choosing which things uh, it wants you to see. Generally, when a person uses the term gatekeeper, it's not that they're against gates. It's that they want to be in charge of the gate and they want to be the only person in charge of the only gate. And that's it. I mean, when you find yourself when you find yourself sending a death threat to somebody because you didn't like uh, what they said about a movie or what they said about fan fiction, ask yourself on whose behalf are you really doing that? You know what? What are you serving? Who are you protecting? Who are you defending? And there will always be the call of, oh well, we're protecting marginalized communities. I will point out Except that the fandom not. mob targets the same demographics that the bad gamergate mob love to target like the every time supposedly quote-unquote progressive like genre fiction book twitter is mad at someone and they they pick a new target to be mad at for their daily two minutes hates at least once a week it's pretty much always a woman yeah yeah it's It's, uh, always a woman (laughs) and very often it's a transgender woman or it's an immigrant woman but it's usually a woman and usually a woman who does not have much institutional power how is that functionally right. any different from the targets that Gamergate went after? It's not. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I, it's it, it it isn't. It isn't. And I'll I'll you know I I make these arguments and articles and I I tweet often while not sober and I say things that I probably shouldn't. But I don't get that kind of pushback because people people look at my bio and they say. Uh, Oh, it's Colin Broadmore, contributing editor. Uh, <laughs> and it, it sounds very professional. And they're like, well, let's go over, let's look at the soft targets. Let's, w- they, they attack women, they attack people who are just beginning their careers, if you know, they can find something yep. like that over them. It's people who are vulnerable. These dog piles target the already and vulnerable. people who are a potential threat, I think. A lot of the time it's like, here's this interesting emerging female writer who's actually right. got a really fresh voice and really got something to say and might challenge my status as, you know, queen fuck of shit mountain. I'd better find some reason to denounce her and try to scare her out of the industry. Like a, a hell of a whole lot of it is getting rid of your competition. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, while we make claims or fan fan community and publishing as an extension of fan community or vice versa, however you want to say it, makes all these claims about diversity, but it will not tolerate diversity of opinion. 
It will not tolerate true diversity of voice. It won't let people say new things. You're only allowed to speak or write within the narrow confines. I mean, genre fiction has always been kind of narrowly constrained by the, the requirements of genre. But now there is a new layer uh, upon that of what you can and what you cannot say, subjects you're not allowed to address. I don't think that Ursula Le Guin would be accepted today if she was writing today. Those, the ones who walk right. away from Omelas would be criticized for having a, a downer ending. Right, yeah. <laughs> People would yeah. be screaming at the left hand of darkness for, no, oh, you, you hashtag bury your gaze. Yeah. Just yeah. Yeah, no, well, that's she's too leftist. She's too fucking subversive even today and the people who claim to adore her do not understand her work at all. Right. I mean the the good thing about subversive art this is this is the good thing about art the bad thing about culture. The good thing about subversive art is that it remains subversive. It still retains its power to offend, to make mm. uncomfortable, to confuse, to challenge culture because it doesn't change you know so much or it hasn't changed in meaningful ways as it is locked into capitalism now we still can be offended by the same thing that people were offended by 200 years ago uh for all the wrong reasons you know it's not oh well this was we've learned since then it's like i still don't like this when when uh, in the monk lewis ends up having his heterosexual romances at the end all be downers oh, that's just being depressing and things like that. No, it's his way of undermining compulsory heterosexuality. Right. Actually using the sad ending to say something. You know, he's using these things as tools, but these uh, tools are being taken from us. Hey, straight people, doesn't it suck to have to end up with someone you don't really want? Gosh, what's that like? Yeah, I can't yeah, imagine. Nobody, that would yeah. be pretty rough, huh? What kind of, you'd have to be a real asshole to do that to another person. Just saying, just putting that I mean, out there. It's it's one of those things that I think we've we've lost a lot of. And and this is the the sad thing is as uh, as the left, we should be the ones throwing the bricks through the windows. Yeah, it's not it's not up to us to say no. Don't cross that line. Don't cross this line. We need to be loud, obnoxious, and in the face We of should society. be edgier I mean, and more subversive and more shocking than the right instead right. of safer. I really, really strongly think so because every young person goes through that phase of like wanting something subversive and shocking. And if the only fucking place they can find that is on the far right, then holy shit, we're in trouble because that's where yeah. they're going to want to go. That's right. That's right. I mean, it's 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 and it's we need the real to give danger. Them that and say like, no, come over here. We're the cool people. We're the fucking cool yeah. sides. Con- conservatives aren't cool. Look at us. We're cool. We're anti-establishment. We're not safe. We we we're, we're 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 edgy as fuck. Like we need to reclaim that. We re- we really need to be fucking cool again. And right now, we are not at all. <laughs> it's true. It's 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 one of those things where you can see this kind of liberal pressure to to conform and be safe like the whole thing like like queer assimilationism all over again like get married be monogamous move into a suburban house with a white picket fence and like be traditionally masculine or traditionally feminine depending on your assigned gender and and it's that why is that the goal why the fuck is that the goal why is the goal to be safe why is the goal to make 
sci-fi that feels safe? Why is the goal to make sci-fi that Jeff Bezos would like? Yeah, it's it's no. it's one of those things. It's it's uh, it's just we cannot allow ourselves to be <laughs> disarmed. I mean, if you think about it, right? If you think about the 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 right wants to have a revolution because it wants an excuse to kill people it doesn't like. The left wants revolution but it doesn't want to cause any harm Mm. and with those two perspectives only one of them is really primed to work out and at the moment it ain't us you've got to break some eggs to have a revolution we need a revolution because you know otherwise we are on course to be killed by capitalism i'll use the late capitalism only because Historically, this will probably be the the final phase of capitalism as it ends up destroying our environment and causing an extinction event for our species. So at that point, capitalism will end when we die. It's one of those things where we need to be fighting that. We need to be resisting it with everything we can. And at the same time, there's this sense, oh, well, but you don't want to upset people or you don't want to say something that could be interpreted incorrectly. And motherfucker, I want to say things that will make the world cry. I want to make people reject everything that they have been taught up to this point. I want, you know, like the books that I read as a kid, you know, I want to read things like Naked Lunch or or other works that just, I had never seen anything like it before and was absolutely gobsmacked by what I found in it. Works that changed how I thought and so changed who I became and who I am. And we can't get that with one arm time behind your back. You certainly can't do it writing infant spin-offs of whatever the latest Star Wars film is. So it's it it, it has political consequence for us. In other words to to bring it back to our topic, instead of aspiring to be the gatekeeper, aspire to tear down the fucking gate and set it on fire. Right. And I hope that and I hope that's what if any of you of my listeners are writers, I, I hope that's what you try to do. And if you're not able to do that, I hope you support those of us who are trying to do so. And if you are currently trying to do that and you're getting yelled at and hated, let this be your mantra. You can't kill me in any way that matters. <laughs> As someone right. who got canceled, I'm still alive and I'm still writing and I'm still going to get my shit published. And I'm not going to stop and people aren't going to make me go away no matter how many naughty, grumpy tweets they throw at me. They can't cancel me in any way that matters. And remember, they can't really, they can't kill you in any way that matters either. (laughs) So fuck them. Fuck the new gatekeepers who are exactly the same as the old gatekeepers and just keep fucking pushing and just keep fucking writing good. But we've talked for an hour and a half, and I think we should probably bring it to a close now. Where can our listeners support you? Uh, where can our listeners find your work? Well, you, your listeners can find my work at bloodknife.com. I usually have something in there. Bloodknife is, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read from my prepared paragraph here because I'll screw it up otherwise. Bloodknife is a monthly digital magazine about science fiction, fantasy, horror, and capitalism. From a leftist perspective, we publish original essays from interesting authors about the intersection of politics and fiction. We're reader-supported, and above all, we pay contributors fairly. 
You can visit us at bloodknife.com or support the magazine and get early access to each issue by signing up at patreon.com slash bloodknife. And I do encourage everybody to do that. I mean, the, the sort of conversations that we're having today this sort of analysis. Yeah, that we're it's it's to bring. good. Like Blood Knife actually has good analysis on it. Thank God, most geek analysis is like, this film is so important and incredibly shallow and awful. And it's like, oh wow, okay, here's here's analysis that's actually kind of thoughtful and interesting and different and and isn't doesn't feel like it's just farted out by a PR campaign. So check out Blood Knife. I, I've also got a piece on there that's really good. That's about how we should have more butts and titties in movies now. <laughs> which is is true uh, you know it's it's always true it's yeah. just a, yeah. a, a a good direction so yeah read read blood knife you can find me there i'm also on twitter but i it's not worth following me honestly yeah, don't bother. <laughs> it's a terrible <laughs> don't place. do it don't do it find, follow blood knife i think it's blood knife mag at twitter bloodknife.com focus on that and uh, i'll just be i'll just be crying in the corner okay um, great where i should be well thank you for coming on Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you, audience, for listening. If you like what you heard, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash writegood. And be sure to listen next time when we talk about hope punk. Or, should I say, cope punk. Until then, keep writing good. This has been Write Good with R.S. Benedict. Hosted by R.S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. Edited by Sid Oosley theme song by Surgery Head. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittysneezes.com. That is R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittysneezes.com. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. Kittysneezes.com in color. <laughs>